This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for June 2nd, 2013. The Gospel is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Today's Gospel lesson, we have um, the story of the healing of the centurion slave, which on the surface looks pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, centurion has a sick slave. He asks the leaders of the synagogue to tell Jesus about it. Jesus is going to go and heal him. But there's actually a whole lot more going on in this than what meets the eye, particularly if you begin to unpack it. And it has to start with, who are these people? Well, first of all, let's start with the centurion. The centurion is like a Roman captain, if you will. They call them centurions because they had a hundred soldiers under their command. And so they were in charge of that garrison, that battalion, if you will. And the Romans would station these groups of soldiers all over the countries that they occupied so that if trouble started, if an insurrection started, they would have a quick response team who could come in and immediately you know, shut it down and, and take care of the problem. And so he's not a Jew, he's a pagan. He worships many gods. And while it would appear that he has some respect for the Jewish faith in the terms of that he believes that since there are many gods, what's another one anyway? And so that one's good. Um, he, he doesn't particularly um, believe in that one God. We don't really know which God he worships. And so he has this slave who he's fond of, and, and he's apparently very, very ill. And so in a meeting with the Jewish elders, he asked them to um, tell this Jesus who he's heard of because of the miracles and things that he's done to um, ask him if he could do anything about this. Now, it's not unusual for the elders of the Jews of a town to meet with the Roman centurion because part of the way that they kept the peace was by you know, working together to keep down any uprisings and you know, if there are any friction going on between the soldiers and the other Jews to discuss those things, any grievances the Jewish leaders could take to the centurion so that they could discuss those things. Now, the Jewish leaders, in, in the, um, it's described as leaders in our translation, but it's actually translated, the presbyteros is the Greek word, which is presbyter, from which we get the word Presbyterian. So they're like the Jewish Presbyterians. Well, not exactly, but... Uh, actually, priests are not priests. I don't know if you know, we're not ordained to the priesthood, per se. We're ordained to uh, the sacred order of the presbyterate which means that we are the elders of the church. And when I was young, I used to think that was a compliment. As I've gotten older and grayer, it doesn't seem nearly as nice as it used to, but, um, but that's kind of how it works. So these guys are the ones who are in charge of the synagogue. And synagogues are a particular style of Judaism. And, and if you remember, there were you know, three main types of Judaism. There were the Sadducees, who were the priestly class in, in Jerusalem. And remember, anybody remember the rest of them, who the other ones were? The Pharisees. And they were the people who started the synagogues. It was sort of the Baptist Sunday school movement of, of the Jewish faith. when they went out and organized these teaching uh, schools all throughout the land so that people would understand the law and be able to follow it. And so these are Pharisees. Not only are they Pharisees, but they're leaders of the Pharisees. And they agree to come back and, and tell Jesus about this um, centurion slave. And finally, there's Jesus, who has just come in from a very long day. He's been uh, preaching 
all day and healing and performing miracles. If you recall, um, in Luke, they call it the Sermon on the Plain. In Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mountain. Mount, but it's the, 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 you know, where the Beatitudes come and the fishes and loaves and all those things. And the reason why it's Sermon on the Plain in Luke is because that was the way Luke described it, and whereas Matthew described it as Sermon on the Mount. It's really the same place, by the way. If you ever go to Israel, you'll see that the Sea of Galilee is like a big bowl, and the, the hill slopes down to the water. And so if you had to be sitting on the flat part, you were on the plain. If you had to be sitting on the side of the hill, you were on a mountain. So it could be either one. And so Jesus has just come in from a very, very long day. As a matter of fact, even the disciples had told him it's, the hour is getting late. Send the people away that they may go to their own homes and get food. And he says, you feed them. Remember the fishes and five loaves? So obviously there's been a lot going on that day. And so he has just gotten back into town, into Capernaum, when the Jewish elders show up. And they say, oh, Rabbi, we were having our meeting with the local centurion, and he has this slave who's really sick, and he wants to know if you can do anything about that. And it would be really good if you could, because this guy's really worthy. He even helped us build our synagogue. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about that. One is that it's not terribly unusual for the Romans to do things like help build a synagogue. For one thing, it helped keep the peace. Um, because if all they ever did was cause trouble, then you'd have a revolution constantly. And so they would do things like that to sort of placate the people in the area. Um, but even more so is their approach to it. Why should Jesus do this? What did he say? Because he's worthy. I mean, this is the Pharisees to a T, isn't it? He's worthy of it because he's done good things. And, and so they're trying to convince him. But it sort of begs the question, why are these Jewish Pharisees, leaders of the Jewish Pharisees, in collaboration with the Romans? Now, think about this, if you would. If the, if the Islamic jihadists took over our country and, and stationed troops all around the country to keep us in line, what do you think our opinion of them would be? We wouldn't like them at all, would we? Well, it wasn't any different for the Jews. They hated the Romans. They were occupied. They saw them as oppressors, not as good people. And so the Pharisees didn't like them either. So why in the world are the Pharisees suddenly um, working with the centurion and trying to help him out? What do they want? Well, what they do is they tell Jesus, oh, but he's really worthy because he's helped us. And so what does Jesus do? He says, okay, well, let's go. Now, this is interesting. Now, generally in Jesus' encounter with Pharisees, what are they trying to do? Trick him. Well, this is really no different. They're still trying to get at him. You know, and it's not even as though the, the centurion necessarily believes that this Jesus can do it. He just says, you know, if it'll work, it'd be great. And so Jesus says, let's go. Why would they want to do that? That's the question. Why do they want to, how does this trick him? Well, think about it. If Jesus goes to the centurion's camp and enters under his roof, what, do, what happens? He's unclean, number one, so he's ritually impure, but something else happens. Who's he helping? The enemy. So the crowd will turn on him. Because they don't want him to help those people. They hate those people. He's supposed to help us, not them. And, and so Jesus plays along and he, he's on his way there. 
And they almost get to this campsite. And before they get there, though, um, there's a large group of Jews heading towards the Roman campsite. What do you think that caused? <laughs> a bit of an alarm. <laughs> Somebody said, there's a large group of Jewish men coming this way. And so they said, well, who isn't? So they found out it was Jesus. And the centurion says, oh, no, no. Send word and tell him that I didn't mean for him to come here, you know, because I'm not worthy for him to come here. Now, what does that mean? What, have you ever heard of a Roman centurion saying, I'm not worthy to a Jew? That's a very strange thing. And what it really is, is that he knows the jig is up. He knows what's happening. He knows that these Jewish elders are using him and Jesus. And that if Jesus comes into that camp, it's not going to be a pretty sight. Because as far as the Jews are concerned, he is unclean. And so when he says unworthy, he doesn't mean I'm bad. He means you shouldn't put yourself through that kind of trouble. Because that wouldn't be right. And he says then, as a matter of fact, that was why I did not come to you. You have to picture that too. What would have happened to this Roman centurion with his guard had ridden into Capernaum, do you think? Everybody would have been afraid, wouldn't they? I mean, he didn't usually show up with good news. I mean, oh, hey, I'm here to help. I mean, if he wanted something, it probably something bad was going to happen. And, and so he says, you don't need to do that. I, listen, I'm a man under authority. I understand authority. I have a, a commanding general. When he tells me to do something, I do it. And when I tell my soldiers to do something, they do it. Now, how does he know they do it? Generally in the military, they don't really uh, take kindly to questioning of authority, to say the least. I remember when my dad and I were talking, this was during the Vietnam era, and I was like a lot of teenagers in those days, you know, everything that had to do with authority was bad. In fact, our motto was question authority, if you remember that. Um, and so I was saying, well, you know, this is ridiculous. They're sending all these people over and they're killing people and it's terrible. They shouldn't be doing this sort of stuff. And, and dad said, you don't understand. When you're in the military, you do what they tell you to do. Said, well, they don't have to do that. He said, no, actually, they do have to do that. And he said, you know, when I was in basic training in World War II. They, if the sergeant said jump, you said, how high? I said, well, that's stupid. I said, why would you do that? And see, they're just trying to lord it over. He said, no, they weren't trying to lord it over. Well, why would they want you to do that? I said, he said, because if they didn't, you would end up dead. The only way they could keep you alive is if you followed orders instantaneously, without question. And so to do that, if you didn't, guess what happened? Anybody here in the military? Anybody ever disobey an order or not, or question it? Did, did you see anybody disobey an order or question it? Not for long? What happened? Hmm? Yep. I can tell you, my dad was out after curfew, which meant he was AWOL, technically, and when he was in Germany. He was with my mother. Um, but, um, and he told me that he got in late, and the, the captain called him in. And, Baird, where were you? Well, you know, I was out, and I didn't get back in time. He said... I want you to go out to this place out there and I want you to dig a hole. He said, well, what size hole? And he said, six by six. How deep? He said, hell. <laughs> That's a biblical word, by the way, so you can say that in church. But six by six by hell. 
And so all night long, my dad was digging this hole. And he just kept digging and digging and digging and digging and digging. And finally in the morning, his sergeant came around and said, Baird, what are you doing? So I'm digging this, this hole. And he said, um, well, that's enough. You don't need to dig it anymore. So dad climbed out of the hole. He was ready to go back. to the He was beat. And the sergeant goes, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going back to the barracks. He goes, fill it up. Do you think my dad was ever late <laughs> again? It didn't happen. So bad things happened if you didn't follow orders immediately. They didn't like you questioning authority. And so this centurion understands what authority means. He understands that if you truly have authority, you say it and it is done. You don't even need to check. You know it will be done. And so he says to Jesus, all you, if, you know, truly, if, if you can do this kind of healing, all you need is to say the word and be done. You don't need to come here. And then it says, there's only two places in all Scripture where this word is used for Jesus. And this is one of them. And it says in our, our Scriptures today that Jesus was amazed at his faith. Now, a better translation modern-wise is Jesus was flabbergasted at his faith. It was like, I can't believe it. And he turns around and he looks at the crowd and he says, I have never seen such faith, faith in all of Israel. Who do you think he was talking to? The jig was up. He had caught them in their act. Now, does he say, so I say, let the slave be well? What does he do? He goes home. So the Pharisees were like, oh great, now we're really in a bind. We promised the centurion that he was going to come and do this, and now he's not even coming. And he didn't say be well, so we're, oh man, it's going to be awful. But, and then the scriptures tell us, and when those who had been sent got there, if you notice everybody else went home with Jesus, and when those who had been sent got there, they found that the slave had already been made well. And the brilliant part about this was they really couldn't even pin it on Jesus, could they? Because he didn't say a word. Except that he'd never seen such faith in all his life. Now the other place where he says this about faith um, which is interesting, it's, it comes a f seven chapters later in the Gospel of Luke when he's in Nazareth preaching to his own people. And then it says he's flabbergasted at their unfaith, at their lack of faith in that place. There's only two times you ever see that term of Jesus. So what is the message that Jesus is trying to teach the crowd and the Pharisees and us today? Well, it has to do with that being under authority. If you're under authority, what does that mean? You know, and if we are under God's authority, God's sovereign authority, what does that mean? Because the centurion got it. He understood that if you're in charge and you really have the power, all you got to do is say it and it's done. And isn't that really who God is? What did God do when he wanted to create light? He said it. There was. You know, and on and on and on. All he has to do is say it and it comes into being. It just happens. Because that's what it's like. And so, although the centurion didn't necessarily really believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, we don't really know if he ends up believing later on. We never hear from him again. He understands enough about authority to know how it works and doesn't question it. Just immediately goes with it. Because that's the way it is. And so we have to ask ourselves, whose authority are we under? You know, all too often we claim to be under the authority of a sovereign God, but we don't necessarily act like it. 
Because we, we will go to the sovereign God and we'll say, Dear God, please cure me of this illness or help me to find a job or fix this problem for me or let me win the lottery or repair my marriage or whatever those things are. And, and sometimes we even go so far as to say, If you do that, then I will do this for you. You ever done that or not anybody did that? I promise you that I will go to church faithfully every Sunday if you will do that. Sometimes I think we do that because that way if I don't win the lottery, I'm off the hook. But now, think about that. We're bargaining with God. What, what do you have that God needs? I mean, this is absurd. This is like, my, my, I have this puppy now who's a cross between a cocker spaniel and a terrorist. Um, I'm in between those two. And um, whenever we're eating... He has taken to, to going and getting one of his toys and squeaking it and bringing it to us. And I can see. I mean, I can read it in his eyes. I've got this really squeaky toy. You want it, don't you? Don't you? Give me the sandwich. I'll give you the toy. Give me the sandwich. I'll give you the toy. I'm thinking, it's slimy. I don't want your toy. Go away. He says, no, no, no. You really want it. You really want it. Donald, you do. But I'm not going to do that. I don't need the toy. But he thinks it's one of the best, most prized possessions he has, so it's obviously very important. I'm also well aware that just like with human beings and God, that once I took it and gave him the sandwich, when the sandwich was gone, he wants the toy back, which is exactly what we do. Have you ever been to a grocery store and gone to the checkout lane? What's in the checkout lane? Candy. Have you ever noticed that those um, stacks, the 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 shelves that are there are the shortest shelves in the entire grocery. They're the only ones you can see over. Why do you suppose that is? It wasn't built for you. That's right. It was built for short people, particularly young short people. Because when you're four years old and you look over there and there is this humongoid three musketeers bar staring at you, what's going to come out of your mouth? I want it, I want it, I want it. And when your mother says, no, you can't have that right now. We're going to have dinner a little bit. It'll ruin your dinner. Then all the kids always go, oh, okay. <laughs> I understand. That makes sense, right? And know what happens? No, it's the end of the world. If I don't get this candy bar, life is no meaning. I may as well just lay down here and die. It's hopeless. Everything's all over with. And oftentimes that's what we're doing when we go to God with our problems.